Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Wyrock. And today we're joined by a very special guest. Edder Garavito is here to talk to us a little bit about clinical mentorship. So I'm going to have him introduce himself and just provide a brief overview of his career. So Edder, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, uh, sure. Thanks, Stephanie. So um, myself, uh, I'm a, I, I'm full-time academician now, uh, been for about four and a half years, give or take. Um, I teach at the College of St. Mary's uh Physical ther- doctor physical therapy program in Omaha. We're actually a blended curriculum, so uh, we you know we do explore technology and then the on sites back and forth and things of the like. But be- before that, uh, my true love is acute care. Uh, you know, cardiovascular pulmonary specialist uh, practice at Duke Hospital for coming up on a decade now and still PRN there. And that's sort of like my true love: the, the patient interaction and and things of the like in the acute care setting. Um, and uh, you know. My story, um, I am guilty. It's kind of like many people's where I busted my knee decades ago and I ended up going to PT school as, as part of interest, but obviously I don't practice in uh, orthopedics. So I think that my story will sort of come up a little bit more as we talk about clinical mentorship here, which is what we're here to talk about. So um, um, I'll, I'll leave it I'll leave it at that. Yeah, so um, I know that that's the topic of today's podcast is clinical mentorship. And, you know, in physical therapy, I think that we're having a lot of conversations about what is the right way to do clinical mentorship formally through residencies and fellowships, informally through jobs. Many new graduates will be attracted to a job where they'll offer clinical mentorship or they say they will, and then they get to practicing. And maybe that isn't exactly what they or think it isn't exactly what was sold to them on the interview. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to become so passionate about this topic. Yeah, no, I, I mean, everything you said is literally spot on. I couldn't have said it better myself. So um, I consider myself a product of mentorship. As I mentioned, you know, busted my knee ACL. I don't practice in orthopedics. I'm ne- I have never once in my professional life used a goniometer, right? So um, it was, it really all started because I had a great mentor, Don Shaw, the late Don Shaw now, who at, at one point was my faculty member. And um, I just really aspired to do the things he did and treat people the way that he treated people and treat the patients that he knew how to treat, which ended up being the cardiovascular patients with cardiovascular or pulmonary dysfunction. And uh, so that's how I got interested in clinical mentorship, because I personally feel like until, um, you know, he, he, he passed away, I had such an amazing mentor and experience, and it left such a huge gap in really where I was in my the season of my career as a growing clinician, uh, when I didn't have that person to support me. Uh, but like you mentioned, Stephanie, you know, prom- I was we were promised mentorship and usually it's this forced mentorship. We just get somebody, you know, is, is given to us whether they like it or not. Are you senior PT or not? So as you mentioned, the experience isn't always what we expect it to be. So to your point, um, we definitely do need to, in our profession and in healthcare in general, uh, come to a consensus and really define what mentorship should look like, right? Um, I think the problem also that I see that you might be familiar with is that, um, and I see this a lot on social media, the term mentorship, I was mentored or they're mentor me, thank you for mentoring me, is thrown out so loosely that at the end of the day, we have to just understand one, was that education versus mentorship? Was it formal? Was it informal? And who was that mentor and how did they mentor you and help you grow uh, to the season in your career in which you are now in your in, in the growing journey? And uh, I feel like not only does that need to be defined, as you mentioned, new grads get promised mentorship. Yes, you'll have mentorship for, you know, three, four, five, six months, what have you. And the experience is completely different from what they envisioned. And um, my belief is that 
as you mentioned, I mean, we don't have a true definition of that beyond what's in the dictionary. And I speak specifically to healthcare. So we have to define what that means, uh, what mentorship means. And the main reason that I'm here is to help define not what mentorship is specifically, but what clinical mentorship is and what it means. And so, so myself, product of mentorship and in you know, my career, I can't say that I give credit to my late mentor in terms of my academic knowledge and my didactic knowledge, but definitely of who I am today as a professional. So then how would you define mentorship and how would you differentiate just generalized mentorship from clinical mentorship? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think for with well, I'm thinking the, the biggest thing that I want, the biggest topic I want to touch on is exactly clinical mentorship. And that for me, for us, I should say is, is what, how somebody is being mentored to grow as a clinician, right? In a clinical setting. Um, and we also have to understand that there's a difference between somebody when in a clinical rotation and they have a, a CI or a preceptor uh, who really doesn't act as a mentor usually, or in my, in my opinion, shouldn't act as a mentor, um, as they are um, looking at how well the student's performing, right? They're assessing them with one of the tools that we used to assess. Uh, they're saying they passed or they failed the rotation. Sure, giving advice and feedback throughout the whole time, but clinical mentorship should come from somebody who is dedicated to support the individual uh, the individual's journey and grow as a healthcare provider beyond uh, I can perform this manipulation correctly or I did the transfer perfectly. That is part of the journey, but really growing to be a, an empathetic, a trustworthy, and a holistic clinician is what we believe that really helps, uh, what we believe, excuse me, defines clinical mentorship and how we need to sort of start funneling our efforts into uh, mentoring uh, individuals clinically versus I'm mentoring you just as a, you know, as a sort of potentially casual or in a different capacity. So do you think that in addition to the clinical mentorship of developing those skills, developing the diagnostic tools, the ability to recognize patterns that is common with clinic with clinicians, um, what is your opinion on the development of professional skills? I know you had mentioned that like in, for example, clinical education. Yes, the clinical instructor there is there to teach the student how to be a physical therapist, right? Mm. How I've always pictured the job of a clinical instructor, and I know this is not how every physical therapist envisions mm. it is that you are mentoring that person to become a leader in physical therapy. So not only are we trying to help develop those clinical skills that you said are important, but we're also trying to help them develop those professional behaviors that are expected of a healthcare provider, advocacy for the profession, connecting with patients in an effective way, and so on and so forth. So can you give me uh, your opinion on where you see professional behaviors lining up in the clinical mentorship model. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that potentially many healthcare providers, myself guilty for a time, argue that the formal education that you're describing, uh, inclusive of clinical education, hands-on training, really adequately nurtures us and creates excellent healthcare professionals. And to be clear, I am not saying that that doesn't occur. It just doesn't work for everybody. So take the example that you gave me because your um, clinical instructor should do everything in the term it should that you mentioned, right? But that really all comes down to chance, meaning did your clinical coordinator, education coordinator do a, a good job of screening that site and making sure that they're going to be good clinical educators? Did the sites coordinator ensure that the person they're matching you with is a good clinical educator or not? And unfortunately, it's almost as if your kids go to camp. You know, when we send students out to clinical education, we have very little control over what happens in those scenarios, right? So we can't really say that every student we send out experiences what you just mentioned and grows in the way that you mentioned. But I think the biggest thing that I want to emphasize here <clears throat> is the fact that um, 
whether it's what we would define as general mentorship or clinical mentorship, as you just spoke about, that example that you gave of this, yeah, helping you grow as a PT, helping you grow as a professional, helping you become empathetic, helping you refine your skills, does ultimately have the ability to grade you in one of our tools, right? They, the CIET, the CPI, they have the ability to communicate with your coordinators. They have the ability to communicate with your faculty. So there's a huge difference between I'm being mentored by this grandiose and amazingly intelligent clinical educator who I respect to the fullest extent of everything, but ultimately they have control, some control, I should say, over my future, meaning they pass me or fail me. So to that point, we need to ensure that we dissociate those experiences because a true mentorship uh, relationship, clinical or non-clinical, should be formed by two individuals where they have no actual formal uh, control over the person's actual progression or future. For example, um, if in that situation, I have a great clinical educator and they come at me and they say, you know what, Edder, like you need to get X, Y, and Z together or you're not going to pass. That would be received completely different than if you, Stephanie, were my mentor and you told me, you know, you got to get X, Y, and Z together or you're probably going to fail because there's that fear, right? There's that um, association with they can fail me versus Stephanie's just there to mentor me, support me, help me grow. So my opinion and our opinion at, is at Scholar and Ethics, which is the company we're working to build this nationwide um, mentorship pool uh, to, to really have the power of choice is that individuals should not be formally mentored by individuals who have some sort of hold over whether they're going to progress or not progress. There's, it's just the stakes are completely different. I'm not saying those individuals that have those controls are not good mentors or good educators, but in my opinion, at that point, that's just education because the stakes are high. If I don't perform the way they want me to, I might not pass. I might not graduate. I might not get my license versus Stephanie, if you're my, my clinical mentor, you have no stake over my future. You can tell me things differently and I'm going to receive them differently because there's no stakes in that. Right. And so bosses, leaders of individuals, um, uh, faculty of students should not be assigned as mentors or anybody or a clinician should not be a uh, clinical instructor. Excuse me, should not really be a, a, a formal. I should see. I'm going to use that term formal clinical mentor. Uh, it's more of an educational uh, environment, if that makes sense. I think that those are really good points to delineate, you know, the difference between an education, a mentor that you need for your education versus a mentor that you need to progress as a clinician. And I, I do think that, you know, um, one of the limitations of our profession's mm -hmm. clinical education is the fact that there is that power dynamic between the clinical instructor and the student, which is one of the reasons as a clinical instructor myself, I always try to try decrease that right. power dynamic as much as I can. It's still always going to be there because you do decide, quote unquote, the fate of the student, right? Mm -hmm. But by trying to look at it as a mentee-mentor relationship versus a student-teacher relationship, I think is um, an important delineation in that. So you had mentioned Scholarnetics. This is mm -hmm. the company that basically you've started to try to help um, solve some of these problems that we mentioned in the beginning of the of the podcast. Tell us a little bit more about your company and what sure. the job of that company is. And as as my understanding is it that it is a multidisciplinary um, company. It doesn't just focus on physical therapy. So how are you thinking about me clinical mentorship in the realm of physical therapy, but then of course in other healthcare fields too. Yeah, um, loaded question, but I'll simplify it. Uh, I appreciate it. So um, we firmly believe that mentorship, clinical mentorship itself is, is not how one becomes a, you know, a, a, an excellent provider, but it's the vehicle to get there, right? And um, as I just mentioned previously, that clinic, uh, clinical instructor relationship where they can decide the fate is just not the same. You need to delineate I'm mentoring you versus I'm educating you. So um, with that said, uh, what we're building is, is an infrastructure where uh, individuals have the power of choosing their mentor, right? Um, I've been practicing now, Stephanie, for 10 and a half years. Um, I've never been able to just say, I, I want you because of whatever the reason might be, right? 
So we want to ensure that moving forward, we don't leave mentorship, uh, appropriate clinical mentorship, adequate uh, clinical mentorship and clinical mentorship of quality to chance, meaning the generations are changing and nobody really cold calls or cold emails anymore. So what we're building is the ability for you to hop on, for anybody to hop on that is looking for, for some sort of mentorship into our system and provide an inquiry as detailed as, uh, I know I'm having difficulty understanding the, the relationship between the brachial plexus and XYZ, or I'm having difficulty communicating with my, with my peers and uh, uh, it's really bringing me down in my study time, et cetera. So based on those inquiries, we'll match you with, with mentors that are part of our mentorship pool nationwide, right? Palm of your hand, twenty four seven, in within our system, and now you're you're going to be the individuals are able to see one, two, or three mentors based on their individualized needs, and they're able to select them based on reviews, credentials, what the individual looks like if they relate. Right, ethnicity is huge, um, and, and it even believes so. Where what we're trying to reduce is that power. Uh, I mean, the the chance of meeting a mentor that can be completely transformative to somebody's career, and offering you that from the palm of your hand, from your computer, just being able to choose who you connect with. And um, the thing of it is, as you mentioned when we first started the interview, sometimes we are forced into these mentorship relationships when we graduate or you get your new job and they promise you something. Uh, you know, I was promised things as well academically and et cetera. And then the mentor who's supposed to mentor you doesn't really fulfill those needs. You can break the relationship, but where do you go from there? Here you have the power of choice. If you don't get along with the mentor for whatever reason, you can make an inquiry again. You can look for others that are going to fulfill your needs to become the best healthcare provider that you can be. Now, in terms of the multidisciplinary approach, you're completely correct. We're starting with physical therapy first, so we're focusing on that for now. Once we start breaking off into the other healthcare professionals, we, we of course, have a plan for a lot of um, um, research to make sure that we understand what those individual professions need from clinical mentorship, because the models do differ, right? So when you're looking for these... <clears throat> clinical mentors, I'm assuming that you're looking at specific attributes that they possess that would be, uh, that they would be able to be funneled into your system. So tell us a little bit about what qualities do you think a good clinical mentor should possess in order to be effective in building that relationship with yeah. their mentee? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Um, uh, you know, I dare to say that I think even for myself, uh, you know, in the past until uh, I grew into uh, who I am today and really became more sort of like versed in in uh, what makes a good mentor is we sort of hold this belief that the individual that has the most publications, that has the most degrees, that has the most titles, that has the most courses, that has the most everything is likely the best mentor that I want to be that person. I want them to teach me. But in all reality, um, there's really no direct correlation between everything I just described and the quality of mentorship you're going to receive from that individual, right? It could be great. It could be completely horrible. And I think most of us and some of our listeners probably are thinking about situations where they were disappointed by somebody who they thought was going to be amazing, right? And so we, uh, as the user within our platform, you can take all those things into consideration, you can literally request you. I want somebody that has this degree. I want somebody that has an orthopedic specialty. I want somebody that's neurologically specialized. You could even request somebody that has that, that is of a specific ethnicity or, or identifies a certain way. But even so, once you match and you start conversations, whether you start with you know a live chat and through the live chat you establish um, that they can that they're going to be an appropriate mentor, then you can eventually do a video call or a voice call you can still move on to somebody else if they don't fit your needs. So to your point about what qualities are required, um, the, the biggest thing is that we need to make sure that mentors are humble, that they're patient, that they're flexible, they're understanding. And we want to make sure that the, the mentors, uh, during a mentorship relationship, 
The mentor shouldn't be doing most of the talking. And we're not trying to transform the mentee into who we are. We're not trying to turn them into who we are. We're trying to help them become their own individual and find their own professional identity through uh, motivational interviewing and things of the like. Um, one of our partners, Course Scholar Index 360, she's actually developed a clinical mentorship certification course that's that we're getting approved for continuing education units and things of the like, where um, those who come to our platform will be able to have a free access to this course. Um, and I'm just going to read them because I don't know them. I have them here. The pillars that her course includes clinical identity, professional behaviors, professional drive, professional, cultural belonging, and personal well-being. And so all of those facets in her course then help, um, would certify somebody to be a clinical mentor. And therefore, we believe that they would have the appropriate um, qualities to be a, a, a good mentor. So it sounds like humility, patience, flexibility, those are some qualities that you mentioned that are mm -hmm. really important for a mentor. So, um, I mean, a lot of those qualities that you mentioned also are important qualities in a great leader. So, you know, these ideas of leadership and being a good clinical mentor fit, uh, fit pretty well together. What is your advice on how mentors and mentees can form strong relation, strong and effective relationships with each other? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the mentor shouldn't be the one doing all the talking. Right. How can we facilitate those relationships so that they become strong? Yeah, uh, the first thing that I that I hope every all the your your um, listeners acknowledge is that the ability for a mentor to listen to a mentee um, doesn't really and receive advice from the mentee doesn't really fulfill the mentor's role completely. Right? Uh, we cannot disregard the um, dynamics of our environment, healthcare environment, how it's changing. Right? Everything's changing, and it's essential to really form these effective bonds. Um, in my experience, in my career, some of the most uh, effective and fruitful re mentorship relationships that I've even that I've been a part of or been a mentor to um, have, um, like you mentioned, mutual respect, open communication, always established goals. Right. So you need to make sure that you can you are able to help that. Excuse me, that mentor. So by establishing these goals from the beginning. These are my goals. This, this is where I this is where I want to get to. Uh, establishing that trust in somebody and trust is huge, right? Making sure that they understand that um, you know, of course there are extremes, but everything that's said in that relationship, in that interaction, and within our platform and in our videos and everything is completely confidential. So what happens often is, especially our seasoned providers, and I speak for myself to be honest, um, it's hard to be vulnerable. Right. It's hard to say I've been practicing for 10 years. I, I need a mentor. It just doesn't work that way. So if we try to decrease that stigma that needing a mentor means I don't understand something. And instead, I need a mentor to help me become better at something that I just learned because textbooks and lectures and labs is pretty much how we are supposed to become great professionals. Right. And by doing that and, and really just baking that trust with that mentor. Um, it's almost, uh, there's almost no chance that it won't be a good relationship. Uh, but ultimately, as I mentioned, we really strongly believe in a personalized experience. So personalized experience come in two ways. You find something by somebody by chance, you cold call them or cold email them because somebody gave you contact and they said they would be a great mentor to you. Or you hop onto our platform and you find somebody that meets your meets what you need. And if they don't, you just move on to the next person respectfully. And it's a, it's all about the individualized needs of that of that person and being heard and being seen um, and how their journey grows, adapting to that journey. You had mentioned that there are challenges within healthcare that can um, make the mentor mentee relationship maybe a little bit. Um, different than other industries. What are some common challenges in these relationships and how can they be, be overcome? Yeah. Uh, so the first one I mentioned is, is, is Stephanie's vulnerability, right? It's hard for us to be vulnerable. Um, and I'll make a generalized statement and it, it's, it's just kind of how our professions are in healthcare. Uh, but it really does have to do with the acuity of patients that we work with and such, right? So there's a, there are a lot of 
individuals out there that um, whose egos are large, they're afraid to ask for help. They feel like asking for help is weakness. And so being able to be vulnerable is, is huge. Um, one of the other things that I think needs to be addressed as well is we need to, as mentors, be able to recognize and acknowledge when the mentee has outgrown us. And it does happen, right? And we see this happening in healthcare where clinicians don't refer out because they want to keep their patient for whatever reason it might be. So I know for a fact myself, and I speak for myself, I can't help every single person that comes to me for help as, as in terms of a mentorship relationship. I've turned some down but I've provided them with resources because I know that I'm not the person that can help them. I've had some mentees that I've mentored for a few years and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're, they're just completely outgrown me. So at that point, we need to be able to let go and provide them with the resources to keep going and keep flourishing and keep growing. Um, so it comes down to adapting to the environment, right? And uh, being able to be vulnerable, be humble and acknowledge when it's time to you know, for the mentor, I mean, excuse me, mentee to move on to somebody who can help them better. Um, again, something you can do really quickly in our platform. If, if we're having this conversation virtually, you can say, look, Stephanie, like I'm not the person, but I know somebody. Here you go. Point about vulnerability. Um, in healthcare, I think one of the things that we don't do enough is talk about our mistakes. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a really great TED talk uh, where it's an emergency room physician. And this TED Talk's old. I think it's over 10 years old. But he talks about the mistakes that he's made as a physician. And if there's one thing that is really important in um, growing as a professional is learning from failure, right? And Agreed. if we're not talking about the failures that we've had as clinicians, we are missing the boat and teaching a valuable lesson. I still remember uh, in PT school, I went to Washington University in St. Louis, and I remember Shirley Sourman was lecturing us to mm -hmm. one, one time. And Shirley, for those of you who don't know, she's a, a very, um, very renowned physical therapist in our mm -hmm. in the profession of physical therapy. And she told us about, you know, one time she was treating a patient, the patient wasn't really responding to what she was doing. She left the room and it turns out she figured out that she was um, passively stretching somebody who had died. And just, you know, hearing somebody who's so prominent in the field right. talk about that mistake that she made or that realization that she, you know, she wasn't being attentive. She didn't check the patient right away for vital signs or, mm -hmm. you know, didn't really try to engage the patient as much. I mean, that teaches you something. And um, also shows you that even the greatest clinicians still make mistakes and humanizes oh, yeah. people. So I think that your point on vulnerability is extremely important. The next thing that I would like you to think about is just, you know, there's this balance in mentorship, right? That mm -hmm. we have to strike between allowing mentees to make mistakes, right? And developing that independence, but also developing their critical thinking skills. So how can mentors and mentees balance that ability to allow the, pay, the, the mentee to make mistakes, but also helping to kind of build those skills so that they can be better clinicians? Yeah. Um, and that's a really good question. And um, I'm 100% going to answer it really quickly, but I want to just go back really quick to the mistake portion, because I think it really draws light to um, Shirley Sarman's mistake or any mistake about like that, it's really hard to take it to your clinical instructor because you feel like you're going to fail versus having a conversation like we're having right now. Right. And that's the point I'm trying to make about, you need to make sure that we have a non-bi and unbiased and safe environment when we approach mentorship. Um, just finding the balance between, um, letting, you know, the mentee fly on their own and being able to teach them all comes down to your own assessment as a mentor, being able to have these conversations with the individuals and, and just understanding that even though some argue that mentorship sort of remains static and has many limitations, it all is ultimately adaptable and it's adaptable to the individual's needs. And, you know, as long as there's open communication, I think that's the most, one of the most important facets. Um, so yeah, um, finding that balance between providing support and allowing mentors to develop their own independence uh, and critical skills sometimes is a little bit of a 
thin line, right? Um, I, I believe that a common misconception might be that mentorship solely involves this sort of direct guidance. I'm going to tell you what to do. And because of that, it potentially hinders um, the, the, the mentee's ability to think independently and problem solve. But Myself, I mean, as a young healthcare provider, I went from being a full-time PT student like everybody, right, to working in a level one trauma hospital and splitting my time 50% or more in critical cardiothoracic ICUs and step downs. So I was working with comorbidities that I didn't even know how to you know, how, how to enunciate. And I, I was sure I was helped by senior PTs and I was trained per se. But fortunately, I still had my mentor at that time, Don Shaw, who really encouraged me when I spoke to him to explore solutions, right? He provided me with resources. And um, this approach helped me, of course, gain more trust in him, but it, it, it was always about analyzing the situations themselves as opposed to him just telling me what to do and what's the best way to do things. So once I got to my place where I'm like, this is what I wanna do, it became a really great place to start discussing um, his opinion versus mine. And I can't say that we always, I always agreed. And sometimes I disagreed. And when I disagreed and I went a different route from his advice, I had concrete evidence or, you know, critical, I I had critically thought through everything and I'd put, put those, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of put everything together myself at that point. So um, really in, in summary, I mean, my belief is that effective mentorship really does involve it is that fine balance but it does involve forming and or fostering the independence of the mentee while the mentor themselves um acts as a guiding force right like i'm just going to help you through these um hills and errors and flows as opposed to just like yeah like this is the answer that, that's just education again we're back right to education yeah. And, and we've really kind of, I think, focused a lot on the early career. Mm -hmm. So then the next question is, how can we, how does mentorship change with the seasons of your career or seasons of life? So, you know, students yeah. versus early career professionals versus more experienced uh, practitioners. What are the different approaches to mentoring that people can engage if they're mentoring somebody who's maybe a little bit more seasoned in the profession? Mm -hmm. In their healthcare field, yeah, and and the one of the biggest things here, Stephanie, is we've talked about vulnerability, but also making sure that we unstigmatize. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're going to use it to decrease that stigma of mentorship. Seeking mentorship as a seasoned professional means that I'm not adequate, I'm not good enough, etc. So. You know, we learn from textbooks, we learn from labs, we learn from social media, YouTube videos, et cetera. We learn from our clinical rotations. But as we grow in our profession, in our, in, in, we're going from one year of practice, five years, 10 years, let's say that mentorship didn't exist, right? Let's imagine what that world would look like if we were, if our progression as healthcare providers was solely dependent on continuing education courses. There are phenomenal courses out there, but there are also courses that don't really provide a lot of, you know, return of investment, let's just say. So even if I go to either of those courses as a clinician five years, 10 years down the road, and I learn the content, great. I've learned academic knowledge. I've learned didactic content. I know a little bit about how to apply it, but it was one instructor with 40 people, right? So if I have an appropriate mentor that can help me with that specific, um, perhaps knowledge gap and help me bridge theoretical knowledge with actual patient case scenarios through examples, through resources, through providing me with uh, potential other people that they know within our net with their network to help me really solidify that knowledge. That's what we lack. And as you and I will know, there's a hundred thousand some therapists, but our, our, our world is really small. And I think all of us know somebody that practices in somebody in something that has X amount of personalities that we can really refer out. Um, so, it is harder for um, a clinician that's seasoned to ask for help. And we have to normalize that. Just like we're talking about normalizing mistakes, we should normalize asking for help. And we should normalize like Shirley Sarman was talking about making a mistake and asking for help because I don't know really what I'm doing. Uh, one of the biggest things that I teach my students when I teach them acute care is to know your limitations. Don't ever walk into a patient's room that has everything and say, I can do this. So if they're not with me in, 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 a, in a classroom and they're by themselves, like I found myself 10 years ago, 
I had my senior PT who was great at training me on how to do things. But when it came to the empathetic side, the emotional side, the even how to uh, address specific situations with the team, how to become more uh, confident in how, to, how I communicate my recommendations, et cetera, that was me, myself. And um, as I reflect on it, I made a lot of poor decisions myself too. And I'm sure that many of us listening can reflect and say, yeah, probably made a lot of poor decisions. And if I would have had somebody to support me, again, not to hold your hand and not to give you answers, but to support you, you would have, I mean, a I think tremendous, much better outcomes. Ultimately, once again, we're providing the power of choice for our platform, but it isn't the power of choice that we're so interested in. Um, my mother had a small neurological surgery last week. And so PTs came to see her. And when PTs came, were coming to see her, the entire staff there said they were amazing physical therapists. Now, I don't practice in neuro, but I think you and I both know when you have a family member that's in healthcare, you know, dynamics are weird. I left the room because I wanted the PT to be themselves and do their things without the pressure of me being in there. Once I came back, I didn't ask my mom what they did. I didn't say like, what did they have you do? Was it good? Was it bad? I asked her, were they nice? Were they good for with, with you? Were they empathetic? Did they listen to you? Did they explain everything to you clearly? Did they handle you with respect? Did they answer all your questions? Do you feel like the session was what you needed? Right. And, and that's part of healthcare that we miss because we're always so focused on the actual knowledge. So for us, we provide you with mentors, patient outcomes. These, these new healthcare providers are going to be the people who put their hands on you and myself and our families. And as seasoned providers, we just need to really get rid of that stigma that asking for help is, 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 is a weakness because it really is not. I believe it's a strength. Acknowledging your mistakes, huge strength, not a weakness. You had mentioned the impact of outcomes, and I know you're talking more about patient care. But how can the impact of outcomes be measured or assessed in mentorship? Um, yeah, sure. So, uh, again, I think that um, even for myself, before I started really getting into the world of clinical mentorship, um, there's a potential potential misconception between many people that the outcomes of mentorship are purely subjective. I helped them. They were great. You know, we had a good relationship, all these things. But ultimately, outcomes can definitely be measured. So you have um, a pay, you know, you're, you're mentoring uh, somebody who is having difficulty with uh, treating their patients for whatever reason. When you mentor them, the questions shouldn't be um, like, okay, so what are you doing wrong? Tell me what you're doing so I can fix that is tell me more about your patient population, right? Let me understand your patient population. Um, how are they, and from your perspective, when you're done with them, how much do they improve? 50%, 75%, 100% of time. And then even asking just generalized questions like that, that help them really formulate this sort of ideation of how their patients are improving. So if we have the ability to share knowledge between each other in the form of mentorship and help uh, each other grow as part of giving back to our profession, we can start seeing that, uh, we'll hopefully start seeing that providers are going to be more dedicated, more empathetic, right? More uh, really treating the patient holistically because let's be real, burnout is huge right now, right? And a lot of a lot of people are transitioning from non-clinical uh, from clinical roles to non-clinical roles. So if somebody's riding that line between burnout, whereas they start seeing each patient as a number because they're just tired, let me just get you through. Let me just get you through. Let me just get you through. If we can get rid of that by grounding them and helping them understand what the patient's story is, what the patient's needs are. That's so much more powerful than if I were to sit there with that individual and teach them how to perform the in, the intervention precisely. You know, you need to be able to understand the patient's story. So one of the advantages that people cite about, let's say, a residency program, which mm -hmm. in the profession of physical therapy, residency is not something that is required. In the physician model, residency is required. Right. And what the residency model emphasizes is this idea of clinical mentorship. Mm -hmm. And the research does support that people who go through a residency or a fellowship program yeah. or are trained as res in residency and fellowship in this field, in the profession of physical therapy, they have better patient outcomes than mm -hmm. people who are not trained in those various um, uh, methods of formal clinical mentorship. Right. What are your thoughts on 
you know, if somebody is really interested in this clinic idea of clinical mentorship, what are your thoughts on the profession of physical therapy requiring residencies to help develop this advanced level of practice? All of us in physical therapy, I should say, uh, regardless of residency or fellowship or not, right? We were trained mostly through textbooks, eventually through labs, clinical rotations, right? So we have the option of residencies. Residencies are amazing. Residency fellowships are great. I want to ensure that I, what I say doesn't come off as I'm devaluing everything, anything because it is not. Um, I guess in summary, I'll tell you, I believe that we should have residencies and fellowships, right? But I want to kind of come back to that, um, what I was talking about initially. Residencies and fellowships are incredible. You're right. The literature does, does state that patient outcomes improve when somebody is um, you know, trained beyond just walking out as an entry-level clinician and have a license and get a whole patient case. So tomorrow that they learn how to treat from, I don't know, seven months of clinical rotations and two and a half years of reading textbooks. So they're great. I think they should be required. Um, but at the same time, when you're looking at a residency in a fellowship, what we're really trying to do, and I'm sure a lot of people won't agree with this, is make sure that we define what is an educational experience versus what is a mentorship relationship. Because once again, and I have a lot of colleagues that went through residencies and, and would tell me about the nightmares of feeling like they were failing, but now they're great clinicians and how they were treated, blah, 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 and all the pressure. And all that's, you know, all those concepts are good depending on the individualized needs of the person in terms of their learning style. But ultimately, once again, they have, I should say they, but like the the uh, residency directors have the hold of whether you're going to pass or fail your residency. So education, and then we can start perhaps even in residencies, in fellowships, having a formalized mentorship program that is separate, but on top of what the individuals are learning, right? And this doesn't mean that now, oh, now I have to have mentorship for another two hours. Let's mix it in. Let's make it a standard. Let's prioritize that. You know, our platform gives you nationwide people. If that's not the thing you want to do, find and, and structure a mentorship program that'll work with the didactic knowledge that you're teaching clinicians, because it's a lot more than just learning how to perform skills and treat patients physically and, and what have you um, that, that is required. And, and so I still firmly believe that a mentor, true mentor should not have a hold over somebody's future. So you, uh, how can organizations promote this culture that values and supports mentorship in this way that you're describing where there isn't this power dynamic, it's more yeah. a collaborative effort what advice do you have to organizations to promote this type of culture? Yeah, uh, I say it's simple. It's uh, likely very complex because I'm not any of these organizations. But I think that um, I strongly believe and we, you know, we, we my, my partners, and I strongly believe that organizations really need to prioritize mentorship um, and, and reduce the amount of pizza parties they give people. Right. Like, let's really get a mentorship program going. And let's ensure that the mentorship program is solid. And once again, that it's built into some sort of training or some sort of longevity, as opposed to now you also have to have a mentor, right? New grads need a mentor. Uh, think about what the pandemic did to our professions, healthcare. So many people went traveling, right? And you have new grads who got their license yesterday based, again, on textbooks, labs, clinical rotations going from one spot to another, to another, to another, and it's all brand new to them. What's to say that they're performing at their best when they can have mobile, virtual, 24-7, whenever they want mentorship. But they, we have to, organizations need to start prioritizing mentorship and start stop falsely labeling um, an event or a handshake or a, they're going to train you for two weeks as actual mentorship and label it as, as it is because if we have those new mentorship programs, it will reduce new grad stress tremendously, um, reduce burnout in a lot of people because they'll be able to handle their days better. They'll have somebody to rely on, somebody that they, you know, to support them as opposed to going to your, you know, to your department chair and saying, you know, I'm staying really late documenting. Well, let's work through some strategies to help you become a more efficient provider. Let's talk about your day. Tell me about, give me a 100 
percent what happens one of your days maybe we can i can help you sort of fix that right um so we we talked about measurables we we strongly believe that if we implement a, a prioritize a mentorship program a good mentorship program job satisfaction is going to increase retention will increase i mean that data is out there with with a lot of corporate america uh, you know pay increases uh, because we are just better clinicians overall what advice do you give to someone who wants to become a really great mentor and aspire to these qualities and to to these attributes that you've been um, speaking of? Yeah. Um, the first one, and, and then we've repeated it several times, you and I, Stephanie, is, is well, two of them, right? Be vulnerable and be humble. The mentee-mentorship relationship is a two-way street. We learn from our mentors as much as they learn from us, and we have to be open to receive that knowledge as well. Uh, it isn't always about providing them with knowledge, right? So becoming a mentor, uh, I would advise uh, somebody who wants to become a mentor to really focus on, um, instead of thinking about pressuring themselves to, okay, I have a mentee, I need to know all these things, I need to review all these things and study so that I can give them the right answers, instead share experiences with them. Share experiences that you've that you've had that relate to what they're going through and how you overcame them. Right. Uh, be patient. Set very clear expectations from the beginning. Uh, maintain open communication and set boundaries, meaning, look, um, we're going to meet X, Y, Z. Right. Or or as much as you need, as much as I can. Uh, our platform allows for your calendars to be uploaded and you can say when you're available online, offline. So it's just about being completely transparent, but have being humble being vulnerable and really sharing those experiences. And the biggest thing, in my opinion, is that clear, the piece of clear communication uh, has that from the beginning. And look, if I can't be your mentor because I'm just not appropriate, I'm going to admit it to you, but I'm going to help you find somebody who can. I think you've hit, you hit the nail on the head um, really well by saying that communication is the key and setting expectations from the beginning, because um, if you don't set those expectations right away, then the balance of experience may go awry and making sure that the expectations are known for both the mentee and the mentor. And then you had mentioned, you know, sharing your own experiences. Can you share a personal lesson or an insight from your own mentoring experiences with our listeners? Just to kind of give us some con a good concrete example. Okay, so uh, what I'm going to say now sounds contradictory, but I'll correct myself, I promise. First, you know, I've, because of the setting that I practice in when I had clinical students in clinical settings, uh, in cardiothoracic ICU and things of the like, a lot of times there were deer in headlights. So um, I helped in my, in my mind years and years ago, mentor them through the process of how to apply their clinical knowledge to treat the patients correctly. But uh, lo and behold, reflecting on those experiences now that I really am truly understanding what mentorship looks like, I was more so educating them, right? So what's happened in these last few years, um, I have, you know, colleagues and friends who have uh, sent somebody to me. I mean, I've had, you know, somebody in Texas, Florida, uh, and I forget where else, where, again, I have zero skin in the game, right? I have no ability to fail or pass them. And I'm able to help them through their issues, whether it's didactic knowledge or how to apply those concepts into real patient case scenarios based on my examples. And something I love to use and I don't, I don't, I'm not afraid to admit it to thousands of listeners is all of my mistakes. Because if I share the mistakes that I've made in my career based on not having who they have in front of them today, right now, my hope is that they won't make those mistakes. And slowly, even if it's a little bit at a time, we start really prioritizing how, you know, patient outcomes and how we treat patients. So I share my experiences with them. Um, I've made a lot of mistakes, some that, you know, when I think about today, I'm like, why did I do that? But I had nobody to support me, nobody to really help me understand how to fix that issue beyond telling me, yeah, you probably shouldn't have done that. You probably should have read that lab value a little bit better. You probably should have looked at the chart closer. You probably should have spent more time reading the medical chart. Yeah, yeah, but that that wasn't the support that I needed, you know? So um, I've, I've loved those experiences because I think going back to the setting expectations and goals when I've communicated with these individuals that I've had the pleasure of mentoring. Uh, it is never, I set the expectation. I'm like, I'm not here to teach you. Like, you know, that's not my role. 
I might teach you some things. We'll have those conversations, but it's to support you and help you grow and help you understand the things that you're not understanding and provide you with the resources. And just honestly, be a cheerleader because it's one of those things, Stephanie, um, you know, I, I love my wife to death. Um, she tells me I'm handsome. I'm like, thanks, hon. You know, I love you. But when somebody that you just know holds no skin in anything tells you you're handsome or you're beautiful, it's completely different. So when I'm able to do that for the mentees that I've mentored instead of their faculty or their supervisors telling them like, you're doing great. It just, it's just received completely different. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've had great experiences once I really realized how to lead that conversation with mentees, how to be a mentor, how to, you know, do my motivational interviewing, letting them speak and let them critically think for themselves as opposed to, oh yeah, let me tell you why that's wrong and let me give you the answers. That's just me teaching them stuff. So. Well, thanks for admitting your mistake on this podcast. <laughs> I hope that that empowers others to be okay with talking about the learning experiences that they've had through mistakes and even mm -hmm. successes, because, you know, successes Absolutely. can teach us. Absolutely. But as Winston Churchill says, failure teaches us even more. So the last question I want to ask you is when we ask all of our guests and that is, if you were to give your 25-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, to not be so cocky, to be honest, because um, I had a great trajectory in PT school. Um, I, you know, I, I, I did well. Um, I, my first job was my dream job. You know, the world was just in my lap, and I thought that I was just the best at everything. And in reality, I was a horrific therapist because I did not seek mentorship. I did not seek help or advice. All I waited for was to make a mistake and for somebody to correct me. So the advice I would give was, look, you're a new grad, you're 25 years old. You're not done. Lifelong learning isn't just continuing education courses, isn't just reading manuscripts, isn't just reading textbooks. It's communicating with others and finding others who have had similar experiences that can help you grow as a clinician. And um, I, I hopped on that train way too late. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise and your insight today with us. And um, is there um, anything else that you would like to tell us as to how our, our uh, audience can get a hold of you if they want to contact you, if they have more questions for you, where's the best place that they can reach you? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, they can reach me at info at scholarnetics.com. Um, that email comes right to us. I give you my personal one, but then it's going to get confusing. We can maybe put it in the, uh, in the text. Uh, but you know, we're still, as we're building the platform, if any, you, and if any listeners, uh, email us and they're interested in becoming part of our beta user group, uh, just email me, email us at info at scholarnetics.com. Uh, we'll make sure that they have special pricing, special privileges. They're part of our beta group. Just let us know that, you know, they heard about us in your podcast and, um, and we'll make sure to take care of everybody. We're here to help. And I'm happy to answer any questions that any of your listeners have. So we'll put those links in the show notes. So look out for those. Thank you so much, Edder, for uh, connecting with us today. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.